Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And remember, to include the name the scoreless sort of podcast in your application. Thank you. Man there uh, trying to stop Drogba hey, getting himself into further trouble. It's a fucking disgrace. Oh, it's not a bad ball for Pelly on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And what a great goal that was. Carlos Alberto. Maradona just walked away from Hoddleland. Maldonado. Thriller podcast. I'm Alex and I'm joined as always by Leon. Leon, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. And we're joined by Conor O'Keefe, who is a professional footballer in Sweden, who's played also in in Spain and in Gibraltar and uh, previously in, in England. And uh, we're delighted to have you on the podcast, Conor. Welcome. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm, I'm excited to be here. So Conor plays for, for Pitya in, in Sweden which is in, so last year you were promoted from basically the fourth tier of Swedish football into the third tier. So yeah. I'm, and so you've been in, playing in Sweden for almost a year now, would you say? Or I, I came here in July of 2020. 
So I've been here about six months now, but the seasons run slightly differently. So normally the Swedish season is uh, April to November. So I joined for kind of the latter half of last season. And then I'm currently in pre-season now for the for the 2021 season. So I guess my first question would be is, as two people who have moved to Denmark and have struggled with the Danish language, how is the Swedish coming along? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really tough language. I mean, I've had fortunately experiences of learning language with football before like you said being in Spain when I was in Spain very few people spoke English at the club I was at so I was almost forced to learn very quickly but when I came to Sweden I'm sure you guys will have probably experienced the same everyone's English was superb all the coaches all the players their English was fantastic which was almost a detriment to me learning Swedish because they were so good at English it was almost like I was back at home so I forced myself to to try my best. I'm on Duolingo at the minute and desperately trying to find more established language classes to go to. <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm getting there. I'm getting there very slowly. Yeah. The Danish Duolingo always gives you like animal names first, which is somewhat intriguing and interesting, but also not very, you know, applicable to everyday conversations. I, I, I say that to all my to my coaches and, and my teammates, they're always asking about my Swedish and I said, Well, I can tell you how how to say I like sandwiches or there's a moose or something like that, but I can't really talk anything more kind of conversational Swedish. Yeah. Well, I like sandwiches. That's something that you can use. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's quality information to convey, I guess. Yeah. It'd be a shame if you actually didn't like sandwiches. It would be difficult. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've got one question, though, because we talked about uh, already about uh, leagues in Sweden. Because in Denmark, it appears that Division Three is League Four. Right? Yeah. Because like, they, yeah. they split them up by, by yeah. regions. Yeah, exactly. So does the same apply to to Sweden? Yeah, so last year the, the fourth tier that you mentioned that we won last year is actually called Division Two. So we're even more kind of different fourth in terms of the name. <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. so we've we've technically gone into Division One, which is the third tier. So we still have Super Retan and then our Svenskin above us. So yeah, confusing names, uh, but yeah, just we stick to the fourth tier, third tier. That's easier to, yeah. to track. Also, quite to, to your advantage right now, right? It sounds so nice. I'm playing in Division One. That's very <laughs> yeah, more do you want? That's true for anyone for anyone that doesn't know Swedish football. You can you can flex a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's uh, wind the clock back a bit. So you started your career at Macclesfield and going through there, and then. You went to university to study mm-hmm. at Loughborough. What motivated you to sort of go back and start to focus on studying rather than exclusively on the football? Well, I, I played football, obviously, from a young age, but I enjoyed school at the same time. I, I was good at school. I enjoyed studying different subjects. I was interested in lots of things as a kid. And I was fortunate that at Macclesfield, whilst, whilst I did my kind of youth team scholarship as an apprentice, normally you leave school at 16. That's kind of the process of becoming a professional footballer in England. But I was allowed by the club and by my school to continue with my A-levels. So I did my youth team scholarship whilst studying for my A-levels from 16 to 18. Um, I was then offered a professional contract. I started as a as a professional for the first time at 18, 19 and I was a third choice keeper, didn't play very often, um, probably didn't do as much extra curriculum practice and training in order to try and break into the first team as I should have done. Um, And I realised how difficult it would be to try and become a first team goalkeeper at that level. Because I'd done my A-levels, I had an offer from Loughborough, having done the UCAS application process 
Um, I never really wanted to go to university. It was never in my mind. I always wanted to be a professional footballer, but my mum and dad encouraged me to go and have a look at Loughborough, go and see the football programme. And I'm very glad that they did because for those of you that know kind of Loughborough University, it's, a, it's probably the best sporting university in the UK. It's the home of British athletics, British swimming. The facilities are incredible. The football programme is almost like a full-time football club. We had strength and conditioning coaches, physios, nutritionists, psychologists, and we were almost full-time players alongside studying for a degree. So once I saw kind of the benefit that it would bring me as a footballer, first and foremost, which is strange to say when talking about a university, whilst also enabling me to study something that I was interested in, which was a, an international business course, and having had the experience of combining studying and sport before as a younger younger person, it was it was a really good opportunity for me to keep progressing on all those all those fronts. So a strange decision in terms of the status quo of progressing through football, but one that helped me develop, helped me to develop as a player and a person. So one I'm very glad to have taken, really. And during the during the third year of your studies, you spent it in Madrid. And I, I read mm. that you when you went to Madrid, you like drove around to every single club in the city to try and get to get a trial with them. So, and that's how you ended up with the, what was it, Fen Labrada? Fen Labrada, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> so, Fen Why did you no. not give up so early? Just, just <laughs> I was hoping Conor would come in. Yeah, just, just let it out. <laughs> I know, it's so bad, because I actually speak a bit of Spanish from now on. <laughs> oh yeah, but this is the golden letter story, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, this is it, yeah. My third year, I had the choice to either do an Erasmus year and study abroad, or to go and work in industry or do a placement year and my aim was still to progress with my football and and working full-time would obviously make that more difficult so I took the opportunity to study abroad I had always watched Spanish football growing up it was something I always enjoyed so the opportunity to go to Spain and try and find a team was a really exciting opportunity but I didn't speak Spanish I didn't have an agent I didn't know any Spanish coaches or anything so I almost had to take it upon myself to be my own agent and try and contact as many clubs in the area that I was going to be living and studying in as I could. So um, my girlfriend helped a lot. She spoke Spanish and, and she helped to translate a lot of letters for me where I kind of wrote out who I was, where I'd been, my like the links to my highlight videos and things. And yeah, we, we literally took a plane to Madrid, hired a car and drove around all the clubs that we could find from the top top teams all the way down to kind of eighth, ninth tier teams. So eventually we were very fortunate that I ended up at Fuenlabrada, who were a really good club. They were in the third division at the time, um, now in the second division in Spain. And again, I, I joined them with their first team. I was a third choice goalkeeper, but training full time, learning Spanish, developing my game in a, in a sense that I hadn't been exposed to with English football. Um, whilst doing my Erasmus, Erasmus year. But I think anyone that's done an Erasmus year knows it's quite light in terms of volume. So it was pretty much just all focused on the on the football. So um, I, it, was a, it was a great experience for me and kind of culminated in a really cool trip to the, to the Bernabeu to face Real Madrid in the Copa del Rey. We had them home and away. So being part of a squad at the Bernabeu was something incredible as well. So what it was, was an amazing, was like amazing year. Prepare, what was it like preparing to play Real Madrid? Like, was there a massive change in sort of people's focus in training or stuff? Or did people try and just like... We, we had a team that was very experienced. We had a lot of players who had played in La Liga. 
Uh, we we had a couple of players that had played for Real Madrid and had played for Atletico Madrid. So they kind of led it in a sense that they were kind of very consistent. For myself, I was in an almost privileged position where I knew I wasn't really going to play because I was third choice. I was the young goalkeeper. So for me, it was just a, right, just soak it all in, be a sponge, learn as much as you can, enjoy it. Um, so, yeah, from having nobody at training to suddenly 30, 40 cameras and journalists watching all our training sessions and then the trip to the Bernabeu itself and things like that, it was a, an incredible experience. Um, but also before, like, so daring the move that you would just, you know, go to all the clubs, ask them whether they would allow you to join training sessions and whatever. Were there any social awkward moments where someone was like, why, why, why is this English lad coming here? And Very, yeah, a few. I mean, the majority of people were quite uh, understanding. I think once they realized that I wasn't just kind of some crazy kid that just liked football, and had actually had some kind of professional level experience, they kind of opened up a little bit more. Um, but there was one, we went How to one How do you convey club. this though, that you're like a professional? Like, cause, I, I, was, like, I was lucky yeah. that my girlfriend spoke Spanish because again, <laughs> my, my minimal Spanish, like we said, I probably would have only been able to say, I like sandwiches in Spanish or whatever it was at that point. So like goalkeeper. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the, there was one club we went to and he, a guy who was, I don't know if he was, uh, I don't think he was the manager. I think he was an assistant manager or something, but he was very, uh, he was almost aggressive in trying to usher us out the door and, and calling us all sorts of names and stuff. But you just tick it off the list and go to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. When you went into the stadium in Madrid, was there anything that like any specific moment that you hang on, cling on to that, that, that stuck out or was it just like the whole experience? Mm. Yeah. I mean, there was a few things I think, when we when we arrived on the coach we were coming through the streets of Madrid and I mean it was was by no means a full stadium it's a cup game against the lower league team it was it looked empty but I think there was probably about 60,000 people there but because the stadium is 80 90,000 you see all these empty seats but coming into the stadium you see all the crowd coming towards the stadium and obviously coming in and putting fingers up at the bus and all that kind of stuff so that was quite funny we had a, a like a police escort to get there. And once you got off the bus, like you see when you watch the Champions League, you kind of see the cameras there and they're filming the players get off the bus. And suddenly you're one of those players and they're filming you get off the bus and you're trying to look like you belong there and that you've always done this before and you're not actually really going crazy in your head. How Did you buy some new like uh, Dre Beats headphones just for the occasion? <laughs> It's funny. A lot of them. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the pros obviously had the big headphones, had the little wash, the little wash bag. I think I had like my living Nike drawstring bag with my boots in, and that was all I had. And I was just toddling along. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then when when we got to kind of the entrance, the players' entrance, the guy holding the door open was Raúl, like welcoming us all and like saying hi. And you're kind of thinking, wow. And then you walk out into the stadium itself, uh, the Bernabéu Tunnel. A lot of people will kind of remember it from seeing that on TV is there's a very long tunnel which is quite deep with metal grating down the middle which separates the home and away teams as they come out and then you have to climb these stairs to get onto the pitch itself and all you can see is the lights from the floodlights and the stands and the stands seem to go on forever that you can't see the sky because the stands are so tall it's such a deep stadium and such a tall kind of almost five tiers all the way around that it feels like a real amphitheater of football. So walking out onto that pitch and seeing those stands and 
and all that kind of stuff. And then looking across and seeing Bale warm up and Kayla Navas and Zidane walking down the touchline, you're kind of like, wow, okay, that's very cool. Yeah, because yeah, I think you you took the, the team took the lead right in in Bernabeu in the in the leg. Yeah, yeah, we went we went one nil up, and it was a great goal. If anyone goes back and watch watch the highlights, it was a really good game. We went one nil up uh, with a really good goal, and I think we were, we were winning one nil at half time, and then they brought Bale on off the bench, <laughs> and you saw you, you saw him warming up, and you're like, all right then, like yeah, okay. I, Let's see what you're all about. And I'm not being funny. His first touch, he 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 had three touches and he'd already set up a goal. The ball got pinged out to him. He took a touch, took another touch, put a cross in with the outside of his left foot and they scored from it. And you're like, okay, fair enough. Like he literally just walked onto the pitch and created a goal. And he nearly scored the second. Keeper saved it. Rebound went in. We were 2-1 down. And we eventually scored an equaliser in the 93rd, 94th minute and ended up drawing 2-2 away. Um, unfortunately, we'd lost the first like 2-0, so we went out. But it was a, it was a really good game and, and we gave a really good account of ourselves, which was really fun. How did you deal with like the communication aspect as, you know, as being a goalkeeper where sort of communication is such a crucial mm. sort of part of the game? Like with the Spanish struggling with like being very new to the language, what was the kind of tricks or like tips or things that you kind of worked on so I was very fortunate that pretty much the only person that spoke English at the club was my goalkeeper coach so I was very lucky that the person that I was I was working alongside most had a good understanding of English and one of the first things I did was I said right I'm going to write down a list of all the words that I use in English when I'm when I'm trying to communicate as a goalkeeper and we'll sit down together and we'll try and translate them as close as possible there was some that he didn't understand what I was talking about but the majority of them, we managed to kind of cross-translate very quickly. So those were the words that I'd learned first, and I'd try and use them as much as possible to get into my head. But then, Do you still once remember you... some of them? Oh, yeah. No, I can, I can still speak them. With, like, I have it. Keepers. <laughs> when, <yeah. laughs> well, I know, that's one thing which is quite interesting, because if people now who might watch my videos and watch me train, they often ask when I'm coming to take the cross what I'm saying because I don't say keepers and they, they can't work out what I'm saying. And I actually use my name. I say Connors when I come and take a cross. And a lot of people go, why do you say your name? And it came from that because I thought rather than me saying something that they don't understand, keepers, or just actually saying Portero, which is a, the word for goalkeeper, but no one uses it. I was like, well, I'll just use my name because then everyone knows it's me. So from then, I've always used my name when I'm coming for crosses in case whatever country I play in, people don't understand what I'm talking about. So things like that, there are little kind of idiosyncrasies that you pick up from. It's quite a, yeah, it's quite a clever also psychological tip also for people to sort of remember your name and yeah, I guess who yeah, also something self confident. Yeah, right? you exactly. just call your name, go out there, go grab it, and yeah, very yeah, cosmopolitan no. as you say, right? It works everywhere. So mm. yeah, good good trick. Anything else though that was uh, uh, different towards you training as a goalie in in England? Uh, in comparison to maybe Sweden later on, but also Spain. What's going on? We're struggling with the Spanish. The big difference in the goalkeeping kind of um, focus was the goalkeeping that I had experienced in England, which was lower, lower football league kind of level. I wasn't at a Premier League club, so I'm sure it would have been different. But there was a lot of focus on athleticism on speed on power on strength 
um, all that side of the game, kind of very direct play, making sure you're strong, coming through bodies, taking balls, that kind of thing. Moved to Spain and the physical element was hardly there. There wasn't, <clears throat> there wasn't many times that we would train in the gym as a team. Um, even with our goalkeeping, there wasn't much base on the physical. It was massively focused on the technical aspect. So on positioning, on um, handling, on footwork, obviously, distribution, first touch, all that kind of stuff. So when I trained in Spain and I'd see the goalkeepers kind of meandering around and taking it easy and I'd be like, right, I'm going to blast them. I'd go in. I was like, I'm going to go in. I'm going to be so fast, so powerful, so athletic. And the goalkeeper coach says to me, he's like, it's great that you can do that, but that then means that you're kind of half a yard off with your positioning or your handling's not quite right because right, you're rushing everything through. So we almost had to rebuild that kind of technical aspect to partner it with the physical stuff that I learned from England. And it fits very well with Sweden now because Sweden is not as technically focused as Spain, but it's not as physically kind of important in, in terms of the elements of your game as, as England is. It's not as direct. It's not as powerful. It's not as aggressive. It's almost in between the two. So the two kind of schools of goalkeeping that I've been fortunate to learn from seem to pair quite well with what the kind of Swedish way of playing football is and what I'm experiencing at the moment. And so, uh, at what point did you begin the vlog? Was it long before? Was it long before the experience in Spain, or had you been doing? It was pretty much as I was going to Spain. That it was that summer, so that was when I kind of, I'd had the whole driving around, trying to find teams, and I was I was in preseason training with the first club I was at, which was a club called Raya Vallecano, the fourth one, Labrada, and I kind of thought to myself, this is a really weird way of getting a club. This is a really kind of interesting story. When I was a kid, I would have loved to have seen someone going abroad and trying to play and like how to get a club if you didn't have an agent. I thought, why don't I just kind of start documenting the whole process that I'm going through? Because hopefully that can bring value to other keepers that might be at that point or might come to that point at some point in their careers. Um, so that's when we started doing Keeping Goals in that summer, which was 2017. Yeah. And what was the initial feedback that you got? Was well, that enthusiasm right it from the get-go? It was funny because... I mean, the first vlog I ever did, I'm sure people probably go and watch it after I say this, but the first vlog I ever did, I was terrible on camera. Like, I, you can literally see how petrified I was to sit in front of a camera and talk. Um, Although it was just I mean, you, right? Pardon? There, was no one, there was no one behind the camera, right? It was no, just no. You talking it, was, to it, was, it wasn't even a camera. It was my phone. I bought a little phone. <laughs> just terrified <laughs> of it. Yeah, I filmed it with my phone. The whole of series one of Keeping Goals is filmed on my phone. So I, I kind of... I'm umming and ahhing, I don't know what to say. Like, I feel I'm really stiff, I'm really awkward. And it's the same as anything. When you first try something, you're terrible at it. <laughs> and I think the first, the first vlog I put out, I had a lot of people coming and watching it because it was all my mates from school. It was all the people from uni. Like, it was all the people like, oh, what's Connor doing? Like, why is he making a video? Like, that's a bit weird. And so, like, the first vlog actually had loads of views because, like, all, all these people wanted to see what I was doing. Like the second, third, fourth carrying on had like nothing because no one was very interested in it. But slowly over time, kind of the the quality of what I was doing on it got better. The quality of the editing that we did got better. But also we kind of, we tried to bring value with every episode, either kind of showing what's happening with me or kind of trying to teach something that I'm learning from my goalkeeping or whatever. But each episode, we tried to help people as much as possible in some way. And over time, fortunately, I mean, we were never we were never focused on the views or the numbers. It wasn't important, but over time, we seem to have kind of really 
helped a lot of people and a lot of goalkeepers, which is amazing. Yeah. Have, have you ever had any sort of issue with the clubs that you've been at with maybe some feedback or like them being who do you who does this guy think he is or yeah i mean i think the 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 first vlog in spain i think i've talked about this before but in spain the first time i was making the videos like i didn't want to make it in and around the club because obviously it's you're trying to be professional and i almost kind of convinced anyone that ever saw that I was filming, even just my own personal stuff, I was like, oh, I'm just making a project for school. Like, you don't really want to talk about it, like all that kind of stuff. But going through as I've kind of gone on, you, you know when you know when it's appropriate to film stuff and when it's not appropriate. As a, I, first and foremost, I'm trying to be a professional footballer. I am a professional footballer now, thankfully. And that's your job. You don't want to jeopardize that. You'd never reveal anything that wasn't supposed to be public. You'd never kind of, put any team meetings or team notes out or anything like that but I think over time people have realized that the whole point of it is not self-promotion it's not me trying to make myself look good it's an honest documentation of when I'm playing well but also when I'm playing badly when I've been man of the match or goalkeeper of the year and when I've conceded five or been injured I'm trying to document the whole process to bring as much value to people as possible and I think the club's I've been fortunate so far that every club I've been to has seen how how much it helps other people and, and I'm sure they've also seen that it has potential to help them as a club as well, spreading what they're doing. So um, I've been very lucky that they've been very kind of cooperative with what I'm trying to do with it. Also, the, the vlog also goes beyond the just assessing your performance, right? And your technique. Mm. Um, I mean, that's an essential part of it. But I felt that sometimes it was also a football lifestyle blog where you not just talk about the training, but also what you eat, what you do, what your expectations mm. are of in your country. And I think mm. this symbiosis of the, these two things getting together is something that's, something that's very interesting, I guess, to a lot of viewers. Yeah, and like I, I hopefully, picture, I think, because yeah. that means that also people that maybe aren't, interested in goalkeeping itself still find it interesting like you say being in different countries pursuing a dream career all those kind of elements of it and the honesty and the kind of the showing the real process of that is is important because as everyone knows it's it's not all kind of sunshine and rainbows when you're trying to chase what you want to do there are some hard bits so hopefully that kind of means that even people that aren't interested in goalkeeping still get some value from it Yeah, and it makes you think of your own Sunday matches in the amateur leagues, right? <laughs> like when you when you wake up and then you try to eat like a proper meal, drink enough to get ready, yeah, do some yeah. stretches, you know, you get in the mood, <laughs> put your backpack on and then you go off. I think that, that, it, that feels very close, you know, even though you can't relate to the um, performance or the level of play, of course, but the, mm. the rituals are more or less the same, I guess, across. Yeah, the and the, fe the feeling, I think. At the same time, like people see when it's a build up to a big game and you're naturally nervous and you're kind of excited and you're waiting to play like everyone's been in that position, whatever sport they're into. So, yeah, I think there's definitely elements to relate, of course, to anyone at any level. That's something that we've always tried to make it. We don't we don't want to make it an elite thing because it's not it's it's the normal process of trying to do what you want to do.
Do you mm. ever have days where you just slack and you're not as efficient in your training? Because it always feels like, you know, <laughs> you know, the, the, is... the mortals, the mere mortals play, sit at home, play the Xbox every now and then, you know, and then go to training twice <laughs> yeah. a week. No, and with I, you, it I, feels I, I like do. I've got my protein intake, um, you know, I did my stretching and now, you know, I'm off to learning some some Swedish. I mean, I do. I, of course, like everyone, of course I do. But the... I mean, I think I'm also very aware how much it shines a light on how boring it must seem to everyone else in terms of the daily process and the daily kind of weekly schedule. Because the the most recent vlog I did was literally my training session, my training schedule for a full week. And halfway through, I said, I know you guys must be bored of this by now because it's literally wake up, go to the gym, come back, have some food, go to training, go to sleep. And for someone that doesn't love it, that must be really, really boring. But for me, I really enjoy that. I love playing football every day. I love going to the gym. I love eating the same lunch that I've had for about eight months in a row and whatever it is. <laughs> it's, it, it kind of it shows you that obviously when you see the, the top players and the cars and the money and the house, that's what you think of when it comes to footballers. But that's the 1%. The rest of the kind of people still playing football They have to live that life all the time. And for most people, they probably wouldn't want to swap with them because it, is, it can be very boring. But for me, thankfully, I enjoy doing it. So after after your studies, you went and played in Gibraltar. How did these mm. um, sort of opportunities come up? Do people contact you, or do you sort of have to proactively sort of put your name out? Oh, I'm interested in playing here, or what? How does? That... I've always had to kind of chase the opportunities. Even um, I, I think this, yeah, this winter was the first time that I had a club that wanted me because it was Petia that I just won the league with and they wanted me to stay. That was the first time that I'd had a club be like, right, we want you for the next season. What a feeling. <laughs> There's something wrong with them. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like, I mean, it's not the kind of no one wants you. It's the, it's a massive space of everyone in the world and everyone trying to be footballers and everyone trying to find links. And for whatever reason, I mean, I finished at Fuenlabrada because I had to go back and finish my final year at Loughborough. I finished my final year at Loughborough. You can't carry on at university anymore. You need to go and try and find a job or a club or whatever you want to do. So I go and play in Gibraltar. And that came from literally trying to secure an opportunity wherever, back in Spain, in England, and kind of through contacting lots of agents, lots of clubs, lots of goalkeeper coaches. There's kind of, you suddenly get murmurs sometimes of, oh, these guys might need a goalkeeper or these guys might need a goalkeeper. At times, I've been thinking that I'm going to Scotland or coming to England or going back to Spain or Gibraltar. Or I've even had ones where it's like, oh, you could maybe find somewhere in Venezuela. And it's like, it could end up anywhere. So as soon as the opportunities come, you kind of have to assess it quite quickly and go, do you fancy it? And you go, yeah, let's go for it. You go and give it a go. And hopefully that then leads to another opportunity. With Gibraltar, we were halfway through, well, two thirds of the way through the season when the kind of coronavirus stuff happened. The the league was suspended and then cancelled. So I came back to England and no one knew how that league was going to go. And then I had to try and find a new place to play. 
that was still playing football and, and Sweden was kind of one of those only countries that was still going. Unfortunately, Petia, well, unfortunately for the, for the other lads, but Petia had had some injuries to goalkeepers. They needed someone to come in. So for me, who was sitting at home, well, training at home in lockdown one, it was like, yeah, get me out there. So then you're back out again and you, you're after somewhere new. So these opportunities, they can come like that and you just have to be kind of ready to take them. You have to sort of just, um, like once there's the initial contact, you have to sort of show them all your clips and stuff. Like this is my repertoire and stuff and this is what I'm capable of. And then like, yeah. how, how quickly can it go after the process? Yeah, so I mean, you can... Contact? what I tell a lot of people that ask me that type of question is it's always important to have your kind of football CV like you would with a, with a normal job application, have your football CV, like your kind of your main achievements where you've played recommendations, all that kind of stuff, then have your football highlight video. So recent highlights from your games, the different areas of your games, which are, which are hopefully beneficial to other teams. And you can actively push that out. I've actively kind of pushed that to, scouts and agents and managers on LinkedIn, on email, on even writing letters like we did, putting in golden envelopes. You just have to actively push it. And then once you kind of see that someone's interested or there's an opportunity somewhere, you have the kind of initial conversations, you, you figure out if it's kind of in the in the best interests of both parties. And then normally you have to make a decision pretty quick because if they if you don't want to do it, they'll need to find another goalkeeper. So you kind of have to almost just hold your breath and jump and go for it and hopefully it's a good decision do you think your vlog helps with creating like this opportunity structure or people can do like a more thorough research on you and look what you're up to where you've actually yeah been? i mean i think the vlog i've always been i've always understood that it's a good opportunity for me to kind of build my reputation as a goalkeeper it, it allows myself it allows me to showcase myself to more people. And hopefully either that is someone that can get benefit from it for themselves, a younger goalkeeper or whoever, but it might also be a manager or a scout or a, or a agent. And I know that it's a good place for me to put up my highlight videos on YouTube as well. So people can see it and you never know kind of who sees what, and you just have to make sure that, as always, you're professional with it. You're doing it for the right reasons. But I think there's no doubt that it helps to have more eyes on you to to show what you can do. And then if that leads to opportunities, then then brilliant. Yeah. But did you realise how big a sort of change it would be from playing in sort of sunny Gibraltar to so <laughs> north? It's like such a polar opposite. Yeah. I mean, in when I arrived in July the summers here get pretty warm. So the summers can get up to 30 degrees here in Petia. So I kind of turned up with my big coat thinking it was going to be freezing and it was almost as warm as where it was in Gibraltar. But now that we're in January, you kind of realise the difference between between the two. And I think, well, it's benefited me in one way because, I mean, the first pre-season that I did in Madrid, it got to 39, 40 degrees when we were training and it was just like an oven. Whereas the other week it was minus 27 and we're training here in Petia. So I kind of know that I can still train and perform at those different ends of the spectrum. So I'm like, well, anything in between is easy now. <laughs> is, are all the pitches that you're playing on in, in Sweden, are they all sort of the 4G Astro? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, even up to the top, the top division here in Sweden, the majority of clubs are all on AstroTurf. And 
it was actually quite similar in Spain, probably from the third division down, everyone was on AstroTurf, but it was for very different reasons. In Spain, it was because you couldn't afford the water to keep it, keep it wet all the time. Whereas in Sweden, like you say, with the snow, you can't, the damage that it would do to grass is, is quite big. So um, in terms of, in terms of us, we train and we play pretty much exclusively on, on AstroTurf here. Do you find you need to adjust some of sort of like your uh, processes and also like the way you sort of approach when you're playing on the different surfaces? Like what are some of the things you've had to change? I think I've probably over, yeah, probably since I was about 22, I've probably mainly trained, at least trained and on AstroTurf the majority of the time. I mean, even at Loughborough, we would train on, Ast- on AstroTurf. We had an amazing grass pitch at Loughborough. And obviously the surface is different in terms of how the ball moves on it, how it skips off, uh, your kind of decision-making process. But Spain was mainly AstroTurf. Um, Gibraltar was mainly AstroTurf. Um, Sweden's been mainly AstroTurf. So most of the time I've been training and playing on Astro. So I think if I ever end up somewhere that's grass again, you'll probably have to make that adjustment back to, to that type of football. But it's all about kind of the speed of decision making, tracking the ball, making sure you're switched on because it doesn't it doesn't play too different, especially if it's a good quality astroturf. I did want to ask you about playing in Gibraltar because all forgive me if I'm wrong, all the games and all teams, their home stadium is like the national Gibraltar Stadium. Did that ever get yeah. like very weird if you're like, Oh, we were at home <laughs> this week, oh we're away this week? Yeah. This so basically weird. like there was there was only twelve teams in the league. We all played on the same stadium because Gibraltar's tiny. For anyone that knows Gibraltar, it's, it's pretty much like a, a rock on the end of Spain with a big city, which is Gibraltar. I think it, maybe 30,000 people, that's about it. So in terms of us all playing on the stadium, yeah, if you were home or away, the only difference was which changing room you went into. So you're kind of not sure where you were, <laughs> getting, where you were getting changed. But the stadium itself is incredible. It's, um, you'll have to have a look on and kind of Google, but... Behind one, behind one goal, you've got the Rock of Gibraltar, which is kind of very, yeah, very iconic, like very kind of awe-inspiring. Uh, so if you're at that end looking that way, it looks amazing. But behind the other goal is the runway for the airport. So you can be taking a goal kick and the Boeing 747 is landing behind you. You kind of have to keep your concentration. So it's a very unique place to play football, but definitely one that I'll remember because it is a very kind of iconic and amazing stadium. Yeah. Yeah. What was what would you like? What was the standard like in Gibraltar? Was it much different from what you've been used to playing in before? Or what yeah, was, how I, would you I mean, the the difference in Gibraltar was the variation in terms of quality. So, even though there was like I say twelve teams, you had the top teams who consistently, because being the top teams are in Champions League qualification, Europa League qualification, have good money, can bring in really good Spanish players or really good. British players or European players and then the bottom teams in Gibraltar are almost kind of like local sides made up of mates that want to play together and very very small budgets so it's not uncommon that if you have the top team play the bottom team you can get a 12 mil 13 mil like it's a ridiculous kind of differentiation in terms of standard but the good the good teams with the good players have some really really top quality players so it was each week something something different was kind of showing itself but it was, it was a good experience and I mean I was kind of in teams which were around the middle of the pack and as a goalkeeper especially when you play against the top teams you know you're in for a busy day so 
in that sense, it's whether you win, lose or draw, you know that you're going to have the opportunity to test yourself. So it was a, it was a good challenge in that sense. Yeah. What, was, what was the worst result you had while you played for your team in Gibraltar? The worst result in Gibraltar was 5 now. Oh, that's not even close to yeah. Nicky <laughs> Salapu. <Yeah. laughs> we, we had one. We had one game where we played Europa, who, when the league was suspended, were top of the league. They were going to win the league. Yeah, so we played Europa, and this was as Europa Point, the first club that I was with, which was pretty much one of the bottom teams. Had brought in loads of new players just to try and build a good squad. And the last time that Europa Point played Europa, they'd lost eleven nil. And we played Europa, we lost 1-0. And I come off the pitch and I was fuming. You've lost, like you're gutted, you're upset. Like the owner's coming down and they're going mad. They're like, that was amazing. Like, it was just, like <laughs> that was incredible. Like everyone's going berserk. Like all the locals, like, oh, that's amazing. That's like, all of us are like, we just lost. Like, why is everyone so happy? And they're like, oh yeah, last time we played them, we lost 11-0. So that's brilliant. And we were like, right, okay. So like those type of things you're kind of not used to. But um, yeah, really interesting experience either way. Once we had Nicky Salapu on and uh, he is the goalie. He used to be the goalie for American Samoa and uh, they famously lost, uh, have the biggest FIFA game loss ever in football history, which was 31 to 0 to um, Australia. And oh. <laughs> there's this one picture where he just, you know, lies in baby pose on the pitch and you can see that it's just, you know, that was one too many. And then we had him on and we talked about this and he said that the one one wish he has in his football career uh, was that he would get to play against Australia one more time, you know, to redeem <laughs> redeem himself a bit. I, uh, I, mean, I mean, there's the fact that you're even at the level where you're playing against Australia, you kind of go, wow, fair enough. Like, whatever happens, you go, that's, that's some experience. But yeah, I, I feel for him that as a goalkeeper, especially because there's not much you can do. I'm sure he probably made about 15 saves as well. So it's a, it's a tough one. Why why a goalie though? That was I, I meant to ask this question at the beginning. When when did you know that uh, a goalie was was your calling? That that was the position. I I always enjoyed playing in goal mainly because my younger brother, who's only about eighteen months younger than me, he always loved playing outfield and he loved shooting and I loved jumping around and saving. So from probably about the ages of four and three, we'd be out in the garden and he'd just kick it at me and I'd try and jump in the way of it. And that still goes on to today. Like even when I go back home and he's back home with me, we'll go to the park and we'll just spend hours in just kicking a ball and me trying to save it. And that was really the the beginning of it. And I enjoyed that that feeling of making a save and jumping around. So yeah, I think if uh, a lot of people that go start off in goal, they don't realise the <laughs> the downsides of the position. <laughs> I, I think that that upside of making saves kind of definitely outweighs all of that stuff. Yeah, I did want I did want to talk about sort of the psychological aspect of sort of being a goalkeeper because something that's kind of mm. always fascinated me is how you deal with making a mistake as a goalkeeper because when you're outfield and you're like some the ball runs under your foot or something you can immediately get on the ball or something and it makes yeah. fine and somebody who's sort of at our very junior level as seven aside has converted to playing in goal I've found very interesting to try and deal with like psychologically how you deal in the minutes after you make a mistake yeah the psychological and the mental side of goalkeeping, I think, can can make or break a goalkeeper. It can be your biggest attribute or your biggest weakness. And I think it's a shame that it's that way because, like you say, a centre midfielder give away the ball 10 times and no one will talk about it. 
if you're a goalkeeper and you misplace a pass, then everyone's going to talk about it. Or if the ball goes through your hands or, and same with the striker, you miss six good chances and you score one, no one worries. As a goalkeeper, you make six saves and you let one in that maybe you shouldn't have done and everyone's pointing the finger. So it's just the culture of football, especially I think in the, the British game. Um, but for me personally, I think every, you're, you're always going to make a mistake. Mistakes will come. And you kind of have to, in the moment, almost blanket and reset and start again because the worst thing you can do is get stressed and get worked up about it because that very often leads to a second one and then you're on a downward spiral and you're in a really difficult place so if you can master the art of parking it at least for the rest of the game starting afresh and each action just concentrating on it 100% one at a time then you can build a good game and then after the game go back and look at it because mistakes are, are data rich they're the best opportunities for you to learn things so as a goalkeeper again it's, it's an opportunity for you to to grow so it's a it's a relationship that has taken me a long time to build <laughs> there's definitely been stages that I've been kind of very anxious about mistakes or or frustrated by them but over time and with experience you kind of learn to to live with the process of them happening and, and know that they will happen and it's about how you bounce back from it and deal with it going forward yeah, more zen approach. Exactly. But, I, but but that's also what stands out, I think, from from your vlog. You you, you seem to have a very thorough and maybe research-based approach to, to to problems and challenges, and mm. then to take them and see them as opportunities to to, to, to mm. grow, uh, maybe as a person, uh, as a person, but also as a as a sportsman. So yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean that's probably something that I benefited from having other areas of my life that I was interested in. I think it can be quite dangerous if you're solely focused on football and everything about you is in that moment. Because if you put yourself on a pedestal as I am a goalkeeper, I am a footballer and things are going wrong, suddenly not, a, not only do you have an issue in terms of trying to sort that out, you also kind of start having an identity crisis of what am I if I'm not very good at this? So the fact that I've always been interested in studying or doing different things or learning about other stuff it's almost translated into my goalkeeping that I like researching different stuff I like trying to play with different elements of developing and it it's almost I take an active interest in that development process that's something that I enjoy doing and even if it goes wrong on a weekend I'll have a day where I'm annoyed about it and I'll try and I'll be home and I'll be frustrated or whatever but then you get up and you go again and you keep trying to move forward with it so I think that's something I've learned by having different elements in my life it isn't oh, I've got to be the best goalkeeper and that's all that I do like it's important to have those other aspects so so moving on to your time at Pity and uh, now uh, what is it like what is life like for you in the town now is it are you like the only sort of foreign player at the club or what would what's the yeah so I mean we Last year we had, there were five of us that were from the UK that were playing for PTO last year. Wait, so we had five, five English lads. Um, yeah. And there are a lot of English lads playing, well, that were playing at kind of all different levels in Sweden. It's probably the most I've ever seen in terms of exported English players. When I was in Spain, there was hardly any. But in PTO we had a few. But then because of Brexit this year, there's been a lot of issues in terms of UK nationals now happen to have work permits. There's a kind of minimum salary for a non-EU 
worker, which is very high and all that kind of stuff. So I was very fortunate that I have Irish citizenship as well as British citizenship. So I can still, I'm still an EU player. So I was able to come back, but all these English lads haven't been able to come back. So now we have, we have a lad who, who's Portuguese that's playing in Petia, um, but the rest at the moment are all Swedish. So, um, and a lot of local lads from, from the town, which is only a small town, but thankfully having been here almost six months now, I now have quite a good relationship with all, obviously the players and the staff and, and, and people within the town that, that know that I play for the club and, it's starting to feel more like home, which is nice. Yeah, because I, I read that the, the t- football team is quite sort of strong and well supported in the town. I know that the women's team is quite quite, mm. quite helpful, right? They play in the top division. Yeah, so the women's team are very good. The women's team are in the top top league in Sweden. They they won that league in 2018 and we're, we're in the Champions League as a result. Like, they're a very good team, the women's team. And I think traditionally the women's team have been had a greater support within the town than the men's team because obviously playing at that level last year with the men's team we had a very successful year too winning the league and getting promotion so it's quite a nice period of time with the town having the two teams doing really well so uh, hopefully we can keep getting those promotions and catch them up and 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 we can make Petia as, as successful on both sides but it's nice to have a small town where two teams are doing really well on on both sides, male and female, which is quite unique. And and in Sweden, are there fans in the stadium at all at the moment, or is it still all behind? We had uh, last ta- last season when we were playing, there was a there was a cap, so we were only allowed, I think it was fifty uh, fans in to watch. It was better than nothing. It was a, it was nice to have people there supporting, but yeah, it was it was unfortunate that we couldn't have everyone everyone come to it. I'm not sure what's happening with this season yet some of the clubs that we're playing against this season are, are big clubs with big stadiums. So it'd be great if everyone's allowed back in, if, if we can play in some full stadiums down, especially down south in Stockholm and, and things like that. But um, yeah, we'll see. Sorry, I have to go back to the Irish thing. Where is the connection? This is when I find out that my mom probably knows whoever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, Connor, Connor O'Keefe is, yeah, is a yeah, pretty self-explanatory <laughs> name. <laughs> on, my, on my dad's side, um, i got a lot of family over in Ireland. So Dublin, Wexford, Cork, like uh, my granddad. My granddad is Irish um, and he came over to the UK when he was younger. Um, and, and so from that, from that sense, we, we have that Irish kind of heritage, but... Yeah, no, I'm a, I love Ireland and, and I haven't been back for a while, but I do need to go back soon and see everyone because it's an amazing place. Yeah, no, I'm from Cork, so Cork is the place. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> well, sure. you might, I don't know if you'll know it, but the, the village that I, my granddad's from is Carignavar, which is not too far from Cork itself, but it's tiny. Like if you don't know it, it's it's, it's a tiny. It's probably about four farms. Oh, I was disappointed. I'm from like very west country Cork, so not near the city. So yeah, well there you go. But what a no, little Cork, yeah. Cork's well, a great place. Should, I should have just lied. Yeah, actually, my mom and dad your mom's not going to like this. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. But it, it must be like thinking about sort of your future plans to have an EU passport. You know, just because I imagine the sort of unknowing of sort of losing that sort of opportunity. And I mean, that was one of the first things as soon as. The kind of vote happened in 2016 my whole family then were like right let's get this sorted because <laughs> I mean even for myself knowing 
even back then, knowing what I wanted to do and knowing that there was probably a strong possibility that I'd have to go abroad at some point and play is, um, I think, the implications, I'm not sure uh, the UK are fully aware, especially for, for, for people trying to work abroad and things like that, how difficult it's going to get. So, yeah, I'm very fortunate in that sense that I have I have the family in able to to do that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a stroke of fortune for myself with that one. So, so what are the aims for sort of the club and for yourself this year, having been, you know, newly promoted from, from the lower division? Is it sort of just survival at first thing or what is the kind of, is that the discussion around? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think last year we were, we were kind of, I think we were almost tipped to be bottom half last year and we ended up winning the league. I think this year automatically everyone goes, oh, quite a small club going up to that level. You're going to struggle. You're going to be trying to play for promotion. In my head, it's the same attitude of well, they can they can think that, but we're going to do as well as we can and 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 see and play as high and try and finish as high as possible. Um, whether that will be promotion again or whether that will be just staying up, whatever it is, kind of in between, we want to give everyone a kind of showing of what we can do as a team, and I think we'll be we'll be in a really good position once the season starts to do that. So I'm I'm excited to test ourselves against some of the clubs that we'll be coming up against. So it should be should be good fun. Yeah, how how soon does this the does the season start? Right, because you're in preseason now and then. Yeah, quite a long time. The preseason here is very long, so our first league game is only is actually on the fourth of April. So we're in preseason January, February, March, and then the first the first league game is away against Dalkurd, who are quite a big club. They're in the Alsvenskan probably two three years ago, um. So that's quite a tasty one to start off with, but it'll be a. It'll be interesting. I've I've not done a preseason this long before, so it's about kind of tempering yourself that you don't peak too soon. You don't want to be kind of, especially emotionally and 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 all that sense. You don't want to be chomping at the bit first of February and then still have two months to go before the game. So you're trying, <laughs> yeah, to, you're trying to build build into it. Yeah, true. How do you do this though? Because because that's what you said, right? Even in even in uh, Spain, you you were so all in trying to make every training count uh how, yeah, how do you hard. restrain yourself like i've always my best seasons have always been ones where i've gone in and gone straight off the bat like even with Petia, i came in and they'd already had two league games and because of coronavirus the league had been halved so instead of 26 games there was 13 games for a season and it was almost like a sprint to the end 13 games anyone can win it so we'd already had two games when I came in. There was only 11 left. And I was like, right, just drop in at 100% and go all out. And we have a great, we had a great year. And those 11 games, we kept eight clean sheets and, and won the league. So for me now, I'm naturally someone that loves to kind of just go and, and give as much as I can straight away. And people will see that from how I train and things like that. But especially emotionally and mentally at the minute, I keep having to make sure that you're building everyone up you're trying to encourage you're trying to keep everyone calm and focused rather than 100 percent energy and then i'm sure as we're getting in towards march and and closer to april i'll i'll, I'll take the tapers off it and we'll we'll go all out <laughs> and do you, have you still got some sort of like long-term goals of maybe trying to play at a highest level possible in england or is it, are you still sort of pursuing this adventure abroad or do you just like not think about the long-term thing and just try and take it by game by game and season by season. I, I do I do think of the long-term. I'm, there's goals that I'll set. and I'm conflicted in a way because I love 
I love what I do in terms of having the ability to travel around and, and see different places and meet different people also whilst doing something that I love, which is playing football. That's a dream lifestyle for anyone, really. But inside, I still have the drive to, especially back home in England, to come back and play at the highest level I possibly can. And the pathway for me to do that is to keep progressing and to keep learning and to keep building my reputation, whether that's abroad. And then when it's ready, and I think there will be a time where it's ready and the opportunity there, come back at the highest level you can and, and show everything that you've learned in this almost kind of apprenticeship that you've done abroad and, and come back and perform as best as possible back home. So I'm sure that will happen at some point, but at the moment I am enjoying traveling around moving up the leagues showing what I can do learning different cultures and seeing different places at the same time so uh, I can't complain it's been it's been a great ride so far so hopefully it'll, it'll keep going yeah it definitely sounds like yeah. it why do you think that because I think you spoke about obviously there was a few English players playing with you in PDA but like broadly there's sort of the perception that British players don't want to try and travel and play abroad and yeah unlike other places like nationalities and stuff why do you think that is do you think that's just purely down to sort of language stuff or something culturally about maybe British football I, I, I think the language is a big thing I think the fact that we don't uh, we are I mean you'll know this obviously Liam the fact that a lot of other countries you you are learning your languages from a very young age in in England you have your French lessons but no one really kind of gives it that much and and the the ability to speak languages is very poor overall um I think that is an element of it I think another element is the fact that we grow up being told that our league is the best league in the world and every every kid wants to play in that league and they almost kind of have the ingrained mentality of well if I'm not getting there, then what's the point? And they throw it in and they go and do something else. Whereas I say to people, like, look at people, look at the Brazilians that are playing in Ukraine in order to just try and get an opportunity in Europe. You travel halfway across the world somewhere that you don't, you've never heard of before. You can't speak the language just to try and get the chance. So I think it's definitely something that more British players should look at because, yes, the Premier League's amazing and there's some brilliant teams in England, but there's a lot of football cultures where you can develop and learn things abroad that you wouldn't be able to learn at home. And it'll only add to your game as a player. And the better you are, the more opportunities you'll get. So for me to try and learn those things and develop is a great opportunity to reach the level that I want to get to. Well, I'm trying to think, I think it's somewhat similar in Germany. Yeah. I don't think there are lots of German players, especially in the youth squads that, that go abroad. A yeah. lot. Mm. Like in comparison to other countries, I guess. Yeah, I think it's also to do with like the markets, right? You know, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of money in English football, like which goes quite deep, and then people are less, more reticent to try yeah. and experience the world. But then, and, the, and the money, the money's a good point. Like if you're if you're a Championship player or a League One player, and you're maybe not playing, you're kind of on the fringes. You're earning a lot more there than you would be at an equivalent level, even in Spain or or Portugal or someone like that. So, are you willing to take a 80% pay cut to go and play somewhere abroad and and a lot of people aren't so it's a it's another good point but I think the big leagues where you're told this is the best league to be in everyone wants to stay there so but at the same time everyone's coming there from abroad so you have to kind of figure a way through all that all that competition 
Cool. So I think yeah, I think that brings me up across uh, everything that we wanted to cover. Thank you so much for. Oh, wait, wait, well, I, well, one question. Yeah, no, yeah. Because it's not everything we wanted to cover. Uh, no, no. Exactly <laughs> not. So because you know, um, we were, since I moved to um, Copenhagen, I haven't really played a lot of football. But then I found this one club, and and Alex um, plays there as well. And he's recently someone transitioned to the role of a goalkeeper. So now, of course, I have to ask for the sake of of, of all box. Not that he's doing a bad job, <laughs> not at all. But you know, just to improve his game. Now that you're here, what, what what is the number one tip for for goalie in the in the amateur league? Just to let oh. you know at what le- what level I'm <laughs> at. The first thing that I had to struggle with for the first couple of games is when when the players at the other end of the field making sure they're standing in the middle of the goal. <laughs> 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 The middle, the middle of the goal, you, you laugh, but the middle of the goal, the middle of the goal is important. Like even, even, even when we train and for whatever reason, we move the goals out the area. So you don't have the penalty spot. You don't have the markings. I will still mark with my foot in the AstroTurf where the middle of the goal is because it's very important. You base everything off that. So obviously knowing the middle of the goal helps. Um, I would, I would also say go go for absolutely everything whether it's a dive whether it's a foot save whether it's a whatever because a lot of the times you stop yourself going in your head you think oh I'd never get there and if you just throw caution to the wind and go for it somehow your fingertip will hit it or it'll hit your big toe and it'll go out and you'll be like how on earth did I save that and that's normally just because you've kind of gone oh never mind I'm just gonna go for it and you somehow make a save so I always say just go for absolutely everything. If it goes in, it goes in, but at least you'll have no regrets of, of not diving for it. Yeah, Connor, I, I, I say far more with my feet than with my hands. Which I'm to that's all right. That, 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 that is the but same. that sounds like quality advice. I'm going to send you some, some footage, like a montage of Alex going for everything and see how it goes. I, yeah, I'd like to see that. With that one. All right. All right. Cool. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been really, really interesting. And we've had a good time. No, not at all. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, good luck with everything for the season. And I, yeah, I encourage everyone to check out uh, Connor's uh, Connor's blog, Keeping Goals, on YouTube, and also follow him on social media. Podcast Network.